Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. For he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Today's uh, last Sunday of the church here. Next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent. And so we're finishing up uh, the series that, uh, that I began way back at the beginning of Pentecost. So it's just what, working through the story of the Bible. And, and now we come to the last chapter that we have in the story of the Bible. But it's not the last chapter because eternity is a long time. But for those of you who've been around here for a while, you'll recognize uh, uh, the dead horse that I'm going to jump on and beat here. For those of you who are new, uh, this might be a little bit new and, um, and maybe encouraging to you uh, to think of uh, the story of the Bible in a different way. But it's weird, and I, I'm going to include in my, the next little bit here kind of a summary. It's weird the way that we've told the story of the Bible in the American Christian church uh, for the past 200 years. It's just weird. And it's weird because you have this fantastic story of this beautiful creation that God made that he has designed to bring him glory, uh, a place where creatures who reflect his image are designed to be in perfect relationship with each other and with him and to take care of the world he created and how we humans managed to screw the whole thing up by rebelling against him and introducing uh, death and decay and sin into the world and how he comes up with this incredible plan to redeem the world back to himself by calling this guy Abraham and promising, promising him land and offspring and blessing. And he promises he's going to reverse the curse through Abraham. And he begins building out this fresh new people, Israel, who are designed to be the God reflectors that Adam and Eve were called to be but didn't be because they rebelled against him. And how Israel fails at that task as well and God sends them prophets and kings, especially the proto-Messiah, King David. He promises David that I'm going to fix the problem of the world and the, the micro-problem of Israel by someday giving you an offspring who's going to sit on my throne forever and ever, who's also going to be a priest. And how God goes to great lengths to bring this plan to fruition, mainly by becoming a human being himself so that he could live the life that we should have lived here on earth and die the death that we were supposed to die, be raised from the dead, ascends to God's right hand and rules over all things in perfect righteousness now. We tell that story and we tell the story about how God has sent his Holy Spirit through his son to his people to create new 
like Israel was called to be before us, to create new, fresh God reflectors, a community of people who are designed to be vocation holders, to be righteous, to, to serve in God's name over this creation with love and mercy, and to, to, to bring about, to push forward the growth of the kingdom. We've told that story, and then we get to the end and we say, and then at the very end, he blows the whole thing up, takes away our bodies, and puts us up in a disembodied heaven where we can play the harp forever and ever. And that's been the way we've told the story, is like the main goal, the main point of Christianity is to get us to heaven when we die. That's, that's how we've told it. And it's completely not the story the Bible tells. And again, uh, dead horse time for those of you who've been around here for a while. Like, there's no place in the Bible, there's no place in the New Testament where Jesus says you're gonna go to heaven when you die. Now, you are gonna go to heaven when you die. Paul talks about that briefly a couple times. Jesus does mention briefly to the thief on the cross that today you'll be with me in paradise. But it's, it's hardly the main keynote, and I'll talk, I'll talk about how that works in here in a second. But mainly the story of the Bible is the one that we just read from Isaiah and in Revelation, and there's a chunk in Peter as well. And even the parts that don't specifically talk about new creation, the theme that recurs over and over and over is that God is committed to redeem every square inch of his creation that was lost in the fall. He's determined to do that. Sin will not win. He doesn't retreat in the end. He doesn't say, I can't do anything here, folks. Let's get back up to heaven and we'll be safe up there in my home in heaven. He doesn't do that. He wins in the end. So that's the last chapter but like I said earlier, it's, not, it's the last chapter in the story of the Bible, but it's actually the first chapter of our eternity on this new creation, loving each other and serving him. Same thing that Adam and Eve were called to do, worship, vocation, and relationship. These three things is what we, what we will be doing on the new creation forever and ever. So let's dig into that a little bit this morning. I'm going to give you an intro part two, and then we're going to look at Psalm 148. The story that, that we've tended to tell in the American church is a story of us going to heaven when we die. What that does is, and those of you, I was having a conversation with one of you recently about, uh, we were talking about uh, a, a show that we had, this person had watched the show. I'm currently watching the show. Uh, he warned me that if you like good endings that tie things up, this show doesn't have it. And uh, I, don't, I, I don't really have too much of a problem with it, but I'm watching the show with Angela, and Angela is big about, she will, she will enjoy a show or a novel that doesn't tie up nicely at the end. But it does frustrate her, and so I was kind of warning her. And I was thinking about how, how endings, they really affect the way we see the whole first part of the story. When you get to the ending, like you, you, you take the ending and then you retroject it back over everything that you've read or everything that you've watched on the Netflix series that you've been watching, and how the way that we have messed with the story of the Bible by forcing an ending on it that's not a real ending, going to heaven when you die, that that has actually changed the way we've read the whole Bible. And the main way is this, is that we've read the Bible as a story of escape, not as a story of redemption. We've read the Bible as like God's direction to get us out of here. Like he's created a plan for us to escape this nasty, dirty earth with its physical bodies and its nature and all the things that go wrong. Instead of God has got a plan to recreate this earth. And so what we want to do, just if I, if I can briefly this morning, is to go back and think about what does that look like? If we, if we change the ending to the story to be the Bible's actual ending, how does that change the way we see the whole story? So a couple of big things. One is, is that 
obviously new creation is where it's at. This is at the beginning of the new creation is mentioned in Revelation 21 and Isaiah 65. What's important about this, though, is to, is to realize that, that the body that you have, the butt that's sitting in that pew right now, is important to God. It's not secondary. It's not just kind of something you've got to deal with until we can escape this world and get up to a pure spiritual bliss. That your body is super important. That means taking care of your body is super important. That means using your body to take care of relationships is super important. That means that your job is really important. It means that your hobbies are really important. They're not just time killers until we get to go to heaven. It's actually what God has called us to do to bring about his kingdom here. The second thing is this, is that death does not win. Revelation 21, verse 4, insists on this, that death will be no more. If, if, here's your body and here's your soul together. I'm going to come back to this in just a second. If you die and your body is buried in the ground or cremated and your soul goes up to heaven, death wins. Death, death gets the last. I know your soul is happy up in heavenly bliss, but your poor body is lost for forever and God, I guess, in our, our old version of the story, just says, sorry, you lost that very important thing that you carried around your whole life, the thing that you had relationships with, the thing that you, drank, you, 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 had, you sipped delicious wine with, the things that you went on vacation with, the thing that you used at your job to serve the community with, gone forever. But the Bible insists that death does not win. That breaking up of our body and souls, that does not, that's not the, that's not the end of the story. Right. New creation restores these things back to each other. More on that in just a second. The other thing is this. If we see the whole Bible as a story, I'll say it this way, and this is maybe the most important thing I can say today in the sermon. I can't vouch for what I'm going to say this afternoon. It might be really important too, but you probably won't be there except for my family. If, if the story of the Bible ends with us going to heaven when we die, then the story of the Bible ends up being a quest for us to get up there. A quest for us to get to God, which, in fact, is the way the American church has seen our relationship with God. It's about how can we get to God. But if the story of the Bible is a story of new creation, where like Paul, or John says in Revelation 21, on the last day, it is heaven. It is God's throne room. It is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. Not us going up from earth to get up to the new Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem coming down here. And the whole story of the Bible ends up being a story of God's quest to get to us. You don't have to chase God. And I said this several weeks ago. There's nothing I could do. There's no logical arguments. There's no stories I could tell. There's no poetry I could quote. There's no deep theological insights I could spit at you that would get us up to God. It's just not possible. The good news is, is that from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, when God comes and walks in the cool of the day, to the very end where the new Jerusalem comes down, centerpieced by the incarnation where God himself becomes a human to live here with us. The whole Bible is a story about God's quest to get to you. You're not trying to get to God. God is getting to you. And I think if we start reading the Bible that way, we can start giving God credit for being a sovereign and loving God. Instead of thinking of him as this vague deistic being out there, that he gives us kind of a handbook that, you know, what's the code for getting up there? That you don't have to do anything. He comes here to us. It's all grace. Now, if I can, real quick before we jump into Psalm 148, and th 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 we won't be long on Psalm 148, I promise. Let me talk briefly, because whenever I've preached about this, people will come and say, well, 
so you're saying we don't go to heaven when we die? I am not saying that. You do go to heaven when you die. Let me tell you, this will kind of be a little slice of the story of the whole Bible, all in one piece. Here's you. You were born in wherever you were born at. But you have a body and you have a soul. That's what this, I know it's hands, but it represents body and soul. God put those together. When God created Adam and Eve, he designed them to be body-soul nexus. He didn't design them as spiritual beings and then he clothed them with an unfortunate body. He didn't invent them as machines and then say, well, I better give you something kind of important, a spirit too. He designed us to be body-soul nexus, right? That's how, that's how God wanted us to be in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve screw that up. God tells them, you've rebelled against me. You're going to die. What happens when they die is their bodies and their souls are separated. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, Paul says a couple times, once in 2 Corinthians 5, once in Philippians 1, that to depart from this body is to be with the Lord. He means when your body goes in the grave as a Christian, your soul goes up to be with Jesus. That's really all Paul says about it. The whole bulk of the Bible is about resurrection and new creation, which 1 Thessalonians 4, when Jesus returns, he will bring our souls with him, raise our bodies from the dead, put them back together and restore them the way they were designed to be in the Garden of Eden. Only now, perfect. No longer prone to sin, no longer prone to selfishness, no longer prone to death. We call that the intermediate state. When your soul's in heaven. All of us in here have loved ones whose souls are in heaven with Jesus right now while their bodies have been cremated or in a cemetery. That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. As N.T. Wright says, uh, 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 it, I just lost the quote, and I didn't write it down. <laughs> I will tell it to you later. Uh, it's something along the lines of like, uh, you know, heaven's a big deal, but it's not the end of the story. It isn't. There's life after life after death. And that's what new creation is, all right? So, with that in mind, let's jump into 148 really quickly. If I could just tell you, I don't have time to unpack this now, but the book of Psalms tells the story of the Bible in the book of Psalms. I, again, I can't unpack that. It, for those of you who know, there are five books in the Psalms. Book one, two, three, four, and five. Book one begins to tell the story of David. Book two ends with, here ends the Psalms of David, and David is gone, which is the nightmare of Israel in exile, that, that David the king is gone. Book three is bad news. There's lots of bad stuff in there. Suffering, crying out to God where you're at. The, 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 the very bottom, it says Psalm 88, which just ends in despair. Book four, all of a sudden, Psalms of David start showing back up. Why? It's the return of the Davidic king. When you get to the end of book five, for, for instance, Psalm 148, it's all pure praise. God has fixed everything. There's a new creation, and now humans and nature Heavenly beings, angels, are all working together to praise God. And that's what Psalm 148 is doing. The centerpiece of Psalm 148 is verses 5 and 6. Look at that with me. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. God gave a decree establishing creation. In verses 1 through 3, it's the heavenly beings. In verses 7 through 13, it's things that he's created on earth, nature and people. God has given a decree, verse 5 and 6 said, that, that creation will be established forever and ever. There will always be creation. This is another way of saying that God is committed to his creation. God's committed to rescuing his creation. It's going to be forever and ever. 
Now, Peter says, uh, the Bible talks about this in a different way sometimes. Peter says that it's going to be like the days of Noah, where in Noah, the world was created and sin, uh, Moses says in Genesis, violence covered the earth. And God sent water to flood the earth and purify it. He didn't destroy the earth. He purified it with water. Peter says God's going to do a similar thing with fire on the last day. He's not going to get rid of the earth, but he's going to purify it with fire. And then Peter actually uses the words new heavens and new earth, new creation. So we don't know what it's going to look like exactly. God is, we do know that God is committed to this creation. We also know that sin has worked its way down into the soil and into the lives of us in such a way that it's going to be a radical surgery on the last day for God to make all things new. But he is going to make all things new. Who will participate in this? Verses one through four, the heavenly beings. Praise him, verse two, praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Now, for us moderns, it's, you say, okay, so there's these astronomical things out there. There's stars and galaxies and stuff, and God's calling them to praise him. That's true enough. All the commentators point out, though, that, that for, for the ancients, this would not be astronomical phenomena that's being discussed here as it is deities. The stars and the heavenly bodies represented gods and goddesses. And what, uh, this is almost like uh, 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 Isaiah 44, uh, uh, Genesis 1 through 3, where the created beings of the earth are there not to be worshiped, and we misuse them when we worship them. The things that we turn power over to, like the ancients would turn power over to pagan gods and goddesses, we turn power over to money, sex, and power, individualism. And at the end of the, at the, end of the day, what we'll see is that God has created those things for our enjoyment and to bring him glory, not to be our masters. And those things too will join with us in praising him. They're created beings just like us. They have no power over us, but we join with them in praising God. Not just the heavenly beings, but look verses uh, 7 through 13. Uh, let's just do 7 through 10. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist. Stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. So you have uh, 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 geological features. You have um, mountains and hills. You have uh, precipitation, uh, fire and hail, snow and mist. You have animals, great sea creatures and all deeps, beasts and all livestock. You have uh, um, plants, fruit trees and all cedars. All of creation joining together in the new creation to praise God. One of our temptations might be to say, well, that's, you know, it's just poetic. N nature, it's, not, it's non-sentient. It, it doesn't think, so it can't really praise God. And yet there's a theme throughout the Bible of nature, animals, and plants also joining with us in praising God. And at least in one case, frustrated in their ability to praise God because humans have sinned and drugged them down and longing to be relieved from that. I'll give you a few examples. One is Job 12, 7 to 10. Job says, ask the beast and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Isaiah 55, talking about new creation, we just read from Isaiah 65 a few minutes ago. For you shall go out of exile in joy and be led forth in peace, 
The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Okay, that's a very, very nice poetry there, right? Like the mountains will break forth into singing and the trees will clap their hands. I don't know if it is poetry. Uh, Psalm 98, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. There's a, and that's just a, a quick sampling of this language. There's tons of language in the Bible about all nature praising God, like actively rejoicing over the presence of God. Romans 8, I mentioned this a second ago, Romans 8 talks about how creation is groaning along with us humans because creation is waiting for our final redemption. Like the squirrels and the trees and the lakes and the mountains and the fields are all kind of anticipating and waiting and hoping for Jesus to return and make all things new so that they can begin to fully rejoice. They can clap their hands and they can sing for joy. I know this is weird for us, but this is what awaits us in the new creation is this new renewed relationship. Tolkien plays around with this in The Lord of the Rings, right? Where the line between smart, sentient, conscious humans and nature is very thin. This is a seventh grade catechism class stuff here that comes up, but I'll bring this up with you guys now. One of the things that's weird about Genesis chapter three you, you know, the, the serpent comes and talks to Adam and Eve. Is the, the, one of the weirdest things in there, of course, is that there's a snake talking to Adam and Eve. Right. But what's even weirder about that, I think, is that Eve doesn't seem to be too shocked by that. Right? She's not freaked out. She's not like, what the heck is that snake doing talking to me? She just talks back. Is it possible that before the fall, we were so right with God that our vocation as stewards of this creation, that we had more of a close relationship with nature than what we do now. Lewis plays around with this in the Chronicles of Narnia, where the animals who are closer to Aslan, the Jesus figure, are able to communicate. And the animals who aren't become dumb animals. They lose the ability to talk. And I don't know, I, I, this is, a lot of this, of course, is just speculation. I'm not putting any money down on anything I'm saying in the past two minutes, except to say this. That, this, that all of nature belongs to God. He is redeeming it. And he is promising that someday, however, however we will experience this, nature itself and us, his, his children, will join together in praise. We will form some sort of choir out of which to praise God. But not just nature. Also all people, look at verses 12 through 13. Young men and, uh, verse 11, sorry. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, so the powerful and the weak, um, king, uh, young men and maidens together, both genders, old men and children, all ages, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his majesty is above earth and heaven. The things that divide us typically, uh, gender, socioeconomic status, um, ages, the ethnicities we see in Revelation, these things that typically divide us are no longer there because we've been bound together in this universal praise of Jesus, which is what should bind Christians now today. It's one thing, that, this is from the sermon a couple weeks ago. It's the one thing that we do have in common. And all the things that we don't have in common can be celebrated because we have this one amazing thing in common, which is that we've been united in Jesus Christ. That will be lived out fully and completely in a chorus of praise along with nature on the last day. 
And then finally, verses 14 through 15. How is this possible? And the answer is, is because God has raised up a horn. Verses 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Okay, what, what does that mean? He's raised up a horn for his people. Well, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, a horn is a symbol of power. It's, you know, borrowed from an animal, an ox who has a horn. It becomes a symbol of the animal's power. It's not just a symbol of animal's power, though. It becomes a symbol of this future one who is going to exercise the power of God. Hannah sings this beautiful song in 1 Samuel 2 where she references this horn that's going to come. I'm just gonna give you the, 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 the horn being, it's all through the Psalms, is that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to be God's horn for his people, fighting for his people, all through the Psalms. But I'll give you one example uh, from the New Testament. Um, in Luke chapter one, this is good Advent stuff here, Zechariah finds out that... Uh, that uh, his new son is going to be the prophet who heralds his new nephew, Jesus. And Zechariah sings this amazing, it's, it's lesser known than Mary's song at the, in the middle part of Luke 1. But he says this, uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's talking about his son, about, about his nephew, Jesus. And he calls them a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. And then he starts tying in all these bits from the story that we've been looking at this past summer. Uh, to remember his holy covenant, the, or, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And it all, Zechariah locates this. He places this right on the shoulders of this horn that God is raising up. So back in 148, how does the new creation happen? How does God fix everything? How does he fix everything? Make all things new. He does it through his horn. There's not a lot of details in Psalm 148, but that's what we have the rest of the story for. He becomes a human being. He takes on flesh so that he can rescue his creation. He can fix, again, the relationship that he designed us to have with God. He can fix, again, the relationship that he designed for us to have with each other. And he can fix, again, the relationship that he designed for us to have with all of creation. What should we do? How should we respond to this? Now, as a precursor to then, because we'll be doing it then, and the answer in Psalm 148, like it is in Psalm 149 and 50, is praise. All, this whole thing is just about praise. Praise the Lord. The word praise is throughout, is throughout here. Just tons and tons of times. So what will new creation look like? Um, relationship, vocation. We will be building houses and planting vineyards in the new creation and praise. Same as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Relationship, vocation, and worship. Now, what we're called to do now is to be in relationship. This is, it's not very American, but Lone Ranger Christians do not reflect the reality that God is creating for himself a new people. We're to be doing vocation. You are to see your jobs and your hobbies as gifts that God has given you to serve your community. And then finally, praise. We're to be praising God. And that last one, I, I've talked about the other two before. I haven't talked about the last one this summer. So if I can spend a few minutes talking about what does it mean that God is saying praise me here? Because it is a little bit weird that God would say, hey, everybody praise me. That's weird. It seems a little self-centered on his part. The second thing is 
well, how do you do it? Like, maybe that's a question. Like, how do I praise God? Like, I don't know if I feel like praising God. Like, what, what, is there something I should do, or is there something I should be trying to feel? And the answer is, and this, this helps me out a lot. This is, um, I've read this before, although I did it on a Wednesday evening several years ago. And so I don't think all of you have heard this yet. This really helps me out a lot. There's a little piece that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. And the piece is called A Word About Praise. And he starts off by thinking about how praise, praising God is hard because it's like weird. God is telling us you have to praise me? That seems kind of like sycophantic. And also like, well, how do I force myself to praise? And, and he's thinking about that and he says this. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, I'm going to do this quote and then we'll be done. Whether about God or anything strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliment or approval or giving of honor. So like God is telling us to approve him or to give him honor, and that seems kind of weird. I'd never noticed, he says, that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Everybody praises. Everybody. Whatever it is that you enjoy, you spontaneously move into praise mode while you're enjoying that. It's irresistible. The world rings with praise, Lewis says. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather. Praise of wines. Praise of dishes. Praise of actors. Praise of motors. Praise of horses. Praise of colleges. Praise of countries. Historical personages. Children. Flowers. Mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. It's unavoidable. Whatever it is that you enjoy, you will be like, that's really cool. You might say it out loud. You might think it in your head. Praise is unavoidable. We were programmed by God to praise the things we enjoy. I had not noticed either. It's not just you praise the things that you enjoy, though. Lewis says this. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely, they might say, or wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are, are, doing, are only doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. So praise is not hard to do. The, the, the hard thing is not praise. The question is, what are you enjoying? The, the problem isn't like, well, how do I praise God? The problem is, is how do I know God so that the delight that I would have if I knew him would cause me to pray. Then the praise would be the easy part. See, the problem is, is, is not that we can't praise. We can praise. The problem is we don't know God. We don't experience his beauty. We don't experience his power. And so when it comes to praising God, our hearts are cold. While it comes to praising the cardinals or while it comes to praising a nice lasagna, our hearts are eager to do that. And I'm not, I'm, not, we all do, I'm not criticizing us. This is what we do as human beings. All I'm saying is, is that if you want to praise Sugo's lasagna, you go to Sugo's and you order the lasagna and you eat it and you will praise Sugo's lasagna. If you want to praise the Lord, the only thing that you have to do is to go into his presence. His beauty is irresistible. Now, Lewis goes on and says this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is, it's praising is the enjoyment's appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. 
The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It doesn't make any sense to think that something is beautiful until you express it and, and, and bring the circle full circle. It says, it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. It's frustrating to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. But what if one could really and fully praise even these things, a good view or a good joke or a good story, to perfection? Then indeed the object would be fully appreciated and our delight would have attained perfect development. Here's what he means. I'll give you an example and then we'll be done. If, if I invited you over for dinner and Angela made you some delicious Indian food, and Angela worked real hard and she, she made this food for you, and you sat down and you ate it, you would say, Angela, this is really amazing. This is really amazing. And she would say, oh, I'm so glad you like it. And that seems like the kind of normal thing that you would do with the dinner. But here's the deal is that Angela made that Indian food for you because she wants you to enjoy it. And the enjoyment that she gets out of it is seeing you enjoy it and serving you with that food. Here's Angela making delicious Indian food. Here's us eating the delicious Indian food. Two separate beings. But when Angela's work to give us something to enjoy rebounds back to her as praise, thus giving her more enjoyment. It's not just people gathered over a dish of like edible material. It's actually binding together in this cycle of, what's happening is, is that your joy in her food is completing her enjoyment of making you the food, which increases your enjoyment of the fact that she's not just giving me food, but Angela cares enough for me to make me delicious Indian food. And it cycles, it cycles on top of each other, this cycle of praise increasing and binding together this relationship. This is what praise does. It's about relationship. And what God is saying is, is I'm creating and crafting this new creation for you guys that you are going to love. And when you get there, your love for it is going to overflow in praise to me. And I'm going to love so much how happy I see you enjoying this world I made for you to love this world that I died for you to love, this world that I rose from the dead for you to love. It's going to be intense, pure pleasure on both of our sides, and it's just gonna bring us closer and closer together all the time. What we're doing this morning here in church is we're getting little foretaste of that. We're hearing God speak to us, and his word should call forth praise from us if we understand the beauty of what he's done for us through his word. We're coming to feast on Jesus here at the rail, and when we taste and see that the Lord is good, we should say the Lord is good. And when we praise God, it makes him super happy that he's made us super happy in him. And it provides a foretaste and fuel forwards to this new creation that he's making for us. Let me pray, then we'll have communion. Father, thank you for loving us. Father, we praise you because you are good. We praise you because you are delicious. We praise you because you've done so much work to take away the things that make us unhappy, to undo the bad, to make all things new. Thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for, Father, we glorify you. Thank you for doing it for your own glory. Thank you for binding together your glory and our pleasure into one thing. Help us to always live lives like that until the day when your son returns and does make all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.